ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Jane Perez is an Australian-born journalist who from an early age wanted to go out and see the world and figure out how it worked. And while still at uni, Jane went with a delegation of students to China. Now, this might not seem like such a big deal, except the year was 1967, and China was right in the middle of the roiling chaos of Mao's Cultural Revolution. Red Guards were marching through the streets. Old temples were being destroyed. Millions of people were being sent to re-education camps. History was unfolding before Jane's eyes. And after that, she knew she absolutely wanted to be a journalist. Jane relocated to New York and eventually got a job with the New York Times. She's reported from Africa and Indonesia and Pakistan. And then she was posted to China, a very different China to the one she visited as a student all those years ago. Jane became the chief of the New York Times Bureau in Beijing, covering the biggest story of our time, the re-emergence of China as an economic and military superpower and arrival to the United States. Jane has since co-created an outstanding podcast series on China's enigmatic leader, Xi Jinping, and she's got a new podcast called Face Off, China versus the US, coming out soon. Hello, Jane. Hi, Richard. Good to be here with you in Sydney. Where in Sydney did you grow up, Jane? Oh, this place called Longueville, which many people haven't heard of, uh, but it's actually quite close to the city on what used to be called the Lower North Shore. What was it like in those days in the post-war years? Was it leafy and prosperous and quiet? It was all those things, and I guess it's become even more so now. How different was your family to the other families in the area, though? Oh, quite different. My father was a Hungarian emigre who left Hungary in 1939, figuring out that a young Jewish Hungarian wasn't going to get very far in the war that was about to break out. And he came to Australia, I think, to get as far away as possible. And he met my mother on a tennis court in Melbourne. And she was of a Scottish background, but very, how can one say, different. Her father was basically an atheist, H.G. Uh, Wells fan, uh, quite independent and uh, idiosyncratic, if you like. So they were quite different parents. They married. My father went back to Hungary. In, in the post-war years, the immediate post-war years? And absolutely immediate, 1946. He went back because he got word that even though the Russians were there, that he could come back and reclaim the family sock factory. So he went back and guess what? He was thrown into jail by the Russians. And my mother was following and landed, I don't know, a couple of weeks later, months later. She'd never been out of Australia before. And she finds her new husband in jail. But they were lucky in this sense. My father's mother was very wily, very well connected. And by this stage, she had a Russian captain staying in the attic of the house. And so with those connections, I guess, and some money, uh, she got my father out of jail and my father and mother fled to Switzerland. And actually, I'm not Australian born because I was born 
on the way out of Hungary in London. Right, so you were born in, in the transit lounge, effectively, so somewhere between here and there. Exactly. Oh, that's fantastic. But So that meant you, I suppose, grew up with a couple of, even though they'd come from very different backgrounds, they sound like they were both free thinkers. Is that a good way to describe your Oh, parents? I think so. Yes, now you mention it. I remember this strange paper coming to the house in Longerville, The Rationalist. I wonder how long ago that was, but anyway, I remember that. Uh, the Economist used to come on what was then airmail paper, and I can remember as a, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12 years old, sitting out on the back porch reading Time magazine. Right. So you were encouraged to be worldly by your parents, or you were just like that anyway? I don't think I needed much encouragement, but the atmosphere was very different, shall we say, to the rest of Longueville and, and to the rest of the North Shore, very, very, very different, I would say. There was a neighbour, her name was Marjorie Barnard. She was a wonderful hi- historian of Australia, Macquarie's World, Short History of Australia. She was also a novelist. She had a partner, I think her name was Earnshaw, and they wrote Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, A House is Built, I mean, sort of old Australian novels. And they, she lived next door, and I would go and visit... And she would be sitting on the front veranda with a, a legal pad, handwriting her books. It's grey hair, plait around the hair. Very indelible image of Marjorie sitting on the veranda. And then she lived with Vera. I never really knew at the time or understood whether they were an active lesbian couple or not. I don't know, just never really figured in the, in the conversation. But what did figure in the conversation was they had great dinner party guests, including Patrick White. So my mother would come back and say, oh, guess what? We met Patrick White last night. (laughs) The lamb was a little dry, but the conversation was interesting. (laughs) Without overstating it too much, do you think that was a model for you, though, as a kind of like a woman could be a writer, a woman could do this and make a living from this? Maybe. Maybe. I never really thought that I wanted to be a writer per se, but I think she was a great example because she wrote really exemplary history. I mean, I remember Macquarie's, reading Macquarie's World and it was lively. It was rather short. It had one big character, Governor Macquarie. Uh, it certainly wasn't fusty. So she was able to make things come alive and I think that must have been quite, quite attractive. And what were you like as a student? Oh, I was okay. I mean, I was pretty good. I mean, I went to Abbotsley and I think I got in on a scholarship. Uh, you know, my parents didn't write me down in the, in the book when I was born, so I sort of had to get in on my merits and I got in on, on, on merit, I believe. Because um, you graduated from high school when you were 16. That was young for then, wasn't it? It was quite young. Uh, so when I was 16, I said to myself, well bit young to go to university right away. So I went on an American Field Service scholarship to the United States. And I was really lucky because under this scholarship, you went and lived with a family for a year. And I could have been put anywhere, right? I could have been put in the middle of Kansas and I would have hated it. But they did a really great job. I lived with an American family 30 miles north of New York City. My American father, Frank, was the marketing director of American Heritage, which was a very upscale historical magazine company. And he'd worked for Time Magazine, my favourite magazine when I got there. And Helen, his wife, was on the board of League of Women's Voters. And they were very small L liberal Democrats 
1964, which was the year of the great election, LBJ versus Goldwater. So that was just an amazing uh, experience for me. And I paid no attention to high school. I was supposed to go to high school, and I went, Pleasantville High School. And it was, it was okay, but, you know, I'd go most weekends into the city and have a great time. New York was starting to sort of go a bit bad in some ways at that period. This is just pre... I don't know. John Lindsay was the mayor and it was very exciting. I mean, I didn't live in there. I lived in Pleasantville, so I didn't... I didn't it, it was called bad. Pleasantville? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pleasantville headquarters the Reader's Digest, which we all looked down our noses upon. We thought, Reader's Digest, what's that? So you came back to Australia and started at Sydney University and then you were off to China, Jane. You were off to China and this is 1967 and it's the middle of the Cultural Revolution, how on earth did a bunch of Sydney Uni students manage to get into China at that? I don't know. Maybe Ted Hill, who was the leader of the Communist Party at the time, had good relations with the National Travel Association. I think that was the group in China. China National Travel Association organised our trip. Um, we It was the first year of the National University of Students having overseas trips, the first year they'd ever organised this. And the choice was Indonesia, too close, India, terrible food, get too sick, China, far the most interesting. So, And there were about 50 of us. I think we were all apolitical. I mean, there weren't any rabble-rousers one way or the other. Uh, so it wasn't a Maoist student delegation? Then. No, not at all. And we weren't red diaper kids. We were just a, a mixed bunch. And what did you know about China before you left? Nothing. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it wasn't exactly the favourite subject at, at high school. And I and what was there to read in, about China in those days in Australia? I mean, it was about the Cold War and the Soviet Union and the Petrov spy case and all of that stuff, nothing about China. And we had no idea that the Cultural Revolution was going on, not a clue. So we went steerage class, I'll never forget this, from Sydney to... Tokyo, we had a week in Japan, then we went from Japan to Hong Kong, and then you get the train over the border into Canton. And we went up the coast, what's called the, the, the Milk Run on a train. Suzhou, Shanghai, Nanjing, Beijing, and then back down again. Um, Shanghai was the craziest place. The Cultural Revolution was in full swing. What did you see going on? Oh, zillions of people. The waterfront, the Bund was just shoulder-to-shoulder people. Incredible. And we were stared at like crazy because, of course, there were no Westerners there at the time. But everybody was very curious, very polite. Um, We went to communes. We went to factories. Everything was in chaos. No work anywhere. Went to a, a commune and we dug, we were asked to dig, take hoes and dig in the fields, pretend hoeing. I don't quite know why. Uh, and we never knew what was going to happen from one day to the next. It was going to be good for your class consciousness, Jane. That's why hoeing in, a, in, a, in some, some awful paddock somewhere in the, in the countryside. Did you see bands of red guards? Oh, all, all over the place, everywhere. Was it like the caricature? Were they sort of marching along, waving little red books? And yes, of course, that, yes. Shouting and chanting? Yes, and... those were not caricatures. Oh. They were, I mean, they were, that's what you see in the photographs, and that was, that was real. And dressed in khaki uniforms with red bands around their left left shoulders. Of course, this was in the city, so they seemed to be having quite a good time parading around the city. I think it was different out in the countryside where they actually had to work. What did you make of that site, that spectacle? Did it, did it interest you, engage you or, or frighten you? We didn't know quite what to 
to make of it. But we, I have to say, we, I think they did a good job in indoctrinating us. I mean, they did a good job in persuading us that this was necessary to get, I mean, I don't know about my 50 colleagues, but with another student, we actually taped, just like we're taping here. And uh, we made a little pamphlet. Uh, well, it's more than a pamphlet. It was a book which was mimeographed off and you know distributed around the universities. And when I look back at that and see the interviews that we we conducted, we were so sympathetic to what they were doing. Maybe that was our our guise of trying to get people to talk to us, but we were we were not argumentative. When you went to Beijing, what kind of dignitaries were you introduced to in the Chinese capital? Well, the foreign minister was a guy called Chen Yi. Uh, who was quite a character, and I think... He was a marshal in the People's Liberation Army too, Oh, he was he? one of the great eight founders of, of modern China and quite a moderate, actually. As it turned out, later in 1971, when Kissinger was coming on his secret trip to organise Nixon coming, Chen Yi and three other generals were asked by Mao to assess the foreign situation and how threatened was China and Chen Yi wrote a paper. He was, I think, the only one of the four who wrote and said, well, I think uh, China should make amends with the United States and we should form a partnership with the United States as a balance against the Soviet Union, which was exactly what Kissinger was uh, wanting to come he was quite something in the Great Hall of the People. He sat there while we, it was freezing cold. We were all rugged up. He was waving around the little red book saying how great Chairman Mao was, how the Cultural Revolution was just what China needed. And guess what? Nine months later, he was put in the, well, he wasn't put in jail, but he was put in house detention and he died in disgrace. Very sad. Still 19 years old and you're meeting the Chinese foreign minister. This is very heady stuff, Jane. Were you, did you have a sense of that or did you just think this was, this was perfectly normal for... <laughs> I don't think I thought it was normal, but I thought it was pretty interesting and I thought it was pretty amazing uh, that all this chaos was going around us and we could be there. And years later, uh, I did meet one of our interpreters when I went back to Beijing as a correspondent. Uh, the interpreter was then, of course, quite an elderly gentleman And as he was leaving after our first meeting, he said to me, Jane, you always used to say on that trip, what is going on? Let me tell you, we had no idea what was going on. Very interesting. Was there a sense that as Westerners you were in any kind of danger? Because by 67 there'd been sieges at foreign embassies, British embassy had been burnt at one point? I don't think so. I think we we were pretty confident that they didn't want to make a spectacle out of us. I think they probably thought we were some kind of asset. I don't think they wanted... We never felt in danger at all. Did you have a sense that you were witnessing an epochal moment in history, world history? Oh, I think so. I think so. I think we felt that this was a huge sleeping giant of a country and this was couldn't go on forever. Um, and somehow they were going to emerge from this. I mean, we couldn't see how or when... But I, I think that trip really made me fascinated about China and made it very clear that this was, a, even though it was in total chaos then, that it would emerge at some point. You could just feel it by the scale and the pressures and the organization and the dedication. You sort of felt no matter what they did and what they put their mind to, they would do it. Was this the moment or when it really sort of came together in your head that you wanted to be a journalist? 
I think so, yes. I think I'd probably knew that even slightly before, but I think definitely that made my the idea of being a journalist. What, is, oh, what has always so. been your mission as a journalist? Oh, I think to try and tell readers, not tell but inform readers you know, what's going on and to make readers interested in what seems interesting of the day. Uh, I don't want to lecture. I don't want to persuade them that a particular political route is the right way or the wrong way. But you're not writing about Hollywood celebrities. You're writing about power. Is there a question of power you want to answer there, Jane? I'm not sure about the power. I think the relationship between nations and I think the United States, after my exchange year, the politics of the United States really grabbed me. And I can remember where I was when Bobby, I was back in Sydney, but I can remember when Bobby Kennedy was shot. I can remember that tumultuous 1968 presidential year. After that, I always wanted to go back to the US and report on politics. I think that was basically, well, you know, I didn't have exact destination of stories in mind, but I always wanted to go back to the United States because I thought that was the place to be. You did a short stint at the Australian newspaper in its early days, back when it was considered a, a lefty newspaper. What well, was the that's, like my, that's my warm, warmest impression. Uh, Adrian Diemer, who was the editor, uh, who was hardly a lefty, he was a small L liberal, he came to Sydney University in my final year and gave a talk at Careers Week and I went up to him afterwards and I said, I've heard all this a hundred times, I really want to be a journalist. I think he was taken aback with my candour and he said, all right, come and see me after your exam. So I went and saw him after my exams and he hired me. So what can I say? I was very lucky. Uh, and I had a great two years there. Um, and then the, he was writing editorials about, you know, Vietnam being a, not the place that Australia should be against the Springboks South African football team coming to Sydney and la-da-da-da-da and Rupert got tired of the, lib I would call it liberal attitude. Uh, and the paper wasn't making as much money as he wanted so he fired Adrian and brought in some, well... What shall we say, more conservative editor. And you went to? I left and went to New York. New York was going through its own period of turmoil in the early 70s. It was about to go bankrupt. It hadn't quite gotten by, by then. It had a spiralling murder rate. But it was probably a more culturally vibrant place then than maybe it is today. You know, you say it, you make New York sound as though it was so dark and it was run by criminals and the, it was unsafe. No, no, but it, was, it, it had a way higher murder rate than it does today and it was on the way to be declared uh, bankrupt. Remember, President Ford, the city, dropped dead. That was only two years later. doesn't sound like that was your impression of New York, Jane. I covered politics, New York politics and Washington politics. Honestly, the, the crime rate didn't figure in what I was writing about. Um, although I did write some stories, feature stories about certain murders, but I, I found the whole thing so exciting and so interesting. You worked at the New York Post. Did you ever see Rupert Murdoch? I did. He walked in. Uh, he bought the paper and he came through the, through the newsroom. Uh, you know, we talked, chatted, and I left. It was very clear what he was going to do because the New York Post was a failing tabloid and it was clear for the Murdoch magic, if that's how you want to say it, and he made it into a zinging tabloid. But I wasn't there when he did that because I left after about a couple of months. And I went to a little downtown newspaper called the Soho Weekly News um, and I wrote a media 
political column for a couple of years. And I wrote this political column, this media column, during the very famous 1978 New York newspaper strike, of which Murdoch was a key figure. And so I knew Murdoch and I knew his lieutenants, and so I was able to write a pretty good weekly column. So from there to the New York Times? No, then I went to the Daily News. So I worked at all three extant newspapers in New York. But it was at the New York Times you met your husband, Ray Bonner, who has been on the program previously, who now divides his time between New York and Australia, where he runs a bookshop. What what do you remember of Ray Bonner in those days? Oh, Ray was the guy in the ice cream Tom Wolfe suit sauntering through the newsroom you know, celebrated for the great coverage of, no, very seriously, great coverage of Salvador and, uh, you know, exposing the Reagan administration support of the right-wing regime in Salvador. Um, yeah, he, put, he reported on several uh, absolute atrocities that had been committed yeah, in, in El big, Salvador. a big massacre. Which invited the entire hostility of the entire Reagan administration and uh, they sort of came down on the New York Times to, to move him out of there. It was like seeing him under that kind of pressure. Well, he it was actually more the pressure of the editor of the New York Times at the time, Abe Rosenthal, uh, who was basically of the same mindset as the Reagan administration. And uh, Abe decided that Ray's reporting was not quite to his political agenda and so Ray was basically came back to New York and then he decided, well, I've had enough of this, I'm not going to be pressured by Abe. So he left and wrote a terrific book, Weakness and Deceit, which was the first of his four books. What were you drawn to Ray? He's exuberant, uh, got great opinions, which are always based on fact. Uh, He's a lawyer. He went to Stanford Law School. After law school, he went to... The The Marines. (laughs) He was a lawyer for the Marines in Vietnam because at that stage he was was quite, he was, what can we say, conservative. Uh, Then he came back to the States and he worked for Ralph Nader. He changed his mind about politics. Uh, Then he went to San Francisco and he became a white-collar crime prosecutor running a huge office of more than 100 people, and he always says he got tired of running people, so he put a backpack on and went to Latin America. And that's how he ended up in Salvador, as a freelance journalist, and that's he was there at the right time when these terrible massacres happened and he was able to write about them. So in 1988, you were posted to Africa for the New York Times. Tell me about the little interesting bit of preparation you did with Ray before you went to Africa as a bit of a get-out-of-jail card. So there wasn't much preparation going to Africa, but, you know, we weren't quite sure about several things. So first of all, we got married because we thought if we got into trouble, it might be a good idea to have a marriage certificate. Uh, And then second of all, we had our photograph taken with one President Mobutu of Zaire, one of the most right-wing dictators in Africa at the Waldorf Astoria. But we thought if we showed this photograph at checkpoints, <laughs> we'd get out of jail. Get into trouble, produce the photo of you with Mobutu and say, here's my friend President, President for Life Mobutu. In, in a very plush, <laughs> on a very plush Waldorf Astoria couch. So what was your first assignment in Africa then, Jane? Oh, so... You know, in those days, the times, I, I don't know if I should be saying this, but it was sort of the, still the grand old days. And so we went, getting there was quite quite interesting. We went via Geneva 
We stayed in a very nice hotel, and we went from Geneva to Addis Ababa. And I don't know whatever had gotten into my head, but I just thought, wouldn't it be great to get an interview with Mengistu, who was the then dictator and had been in charge for a long time? I guess he emerged after the killing of the emperor, Haile Selassie, and he'd been in charge for quite a while. And no one had really interviewed him. So I befriended some guy from the foreign ministry and hung around for what seemed like an endless amount of time, week to 10 days. I remember somehow getting a bottle of Glenfiddich and giving it to the guy from the foreign minister, you know, trying to coax things along. And guess what? I got the interview. And I filed the story and it was sent back to me. Too favorable. <laughs> Recast. <laughs> Can you imagine writing a story that was too favourable <laughs> about, about, yeah. a, about a dictator like that? Uh, was he right, though? Of course they were right. You know, I'd just written this bullshit about, you know, how uh, Mengistu wanted to be friends with the United States. I mean, it's just totally ridiculous. So actually it didn't take too much work. It took a little bit of re-engineering and, shall we say, some added paragraphs about his atrocities. And was that a lesson learned for you? Oh, definitely. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. We were talking before about how you got posted to Africa in the late 80s and there was a lot going on, multiple civil wars, famines, the HIV AIDS epidemic. What was the story that still stands out for you? Well, I was, I don't know whether the right word's lucky, but I was there as the big famine in Somalia came about in 1992. It seems like eons ago now and there have been so many, so many famines since. But this was a big famine that I think caught the world's attention because of its severity and there were a lot of reasons. And Somalia was more accessible, of course, it had been closed off because it was part of the, uh, you know, the forbidden part of, of, of Africa uh, during the Cold War. I was posted in Kenya at the time and there was murmurs going around. There's this incredible famine going on in Somalia. And I thought to myself, well, I better try and get there. And in those days, the International Committee of the Red Cross was really the greatest access for journalists. So I went to them and said, will you take me to Mogadishu and to the centre of the famine? They said yes, because they were looking to get attention. So, and I found Fiona McDougall, who's a great photographer, and we hopped onto an ICRC small plane and we flew from Nairobi to Mogadishu, uh, just a few hours actually. And then we got into an ICRC vehicle and went west into the centre of Somalia to a place called Baidoa, where we saw a lot of dead people. We slept overnight in Baidoa. It was dark by the time we got there. The next morning we drove to this camp and all along the road there were dead people. We got to the camp and they were digging graves for the babies and the children who were dying for lack of, lack of food. Um, and it was a so-called UN camp, but it was a, it was, they had nothing there, basically, just thin water, no food, nothing. 
So it was one of those really callous things, I suppose. We uh, got pictures, I interviewed people, we raced back to the airport and we got back to Nairobi in time that I could write a story and the timing was really good in terms of the publicity because the story appeared on the front page of the New York Times on a Sunday, which in those days was mass circulation. Front page of the New York Times. Above the fold. Above the fold. This is your coverage of the famine in Somalia. And this was during the administration of George H.W. Bush, the first George Bush. What effect did this story have on the Bush administration? Well, remarkably, afterwards I learned some, some months later that Bush had written on the top of the page, we should do something about this. And... A few weeks after we were in uh, Somalia, the United States started to send food into Somalia via Kenya. And by that time, it was a worldwide story, and I kept going back to Somalia. And then at Christmas of that year, the Americans landed troops under a UN flag, and other countries also contributed to that effort, which all ended in tragedy with Black Hawk Down when American uh, soldiers were killed in a, in a fight between the Somalis and the Americans. And that was a very ignominious end to what had been quite a gallant effort. Yeah, they got caught essentially between a couple of warlords there, didn't Correct. they, in, in Somalia? Correct. What, were there any lessons learnt by you or the Americans as a result of that, that debacle? I think that it made the Americans obviously much more nervous about interfering. Interfering is the wrong word. Intervening. Intervening, thank you. Intervening in such... I think it had a very negative effect. And I think it had a negative effect on America's involvement in lots of places around the world. So throughout the 90s, you had several postings. You were in Washington and then all over the world. Were you still keeping an eye on China? Yeah, I went back uh, to China a couple of times and... On one of those trips, I met Chen Shalu, who was the son of Chen Yi, the foreign minister I'd met years before. And Chen Shalu, by virtue of being a son of a foreign minister, was of the princeling class. What is the princeling class? The princeling class is Xi Jinping, the current leader of China. They are the sons and daughters of the upper echelons of the Communist Party. And are they the people who've inherited the earth as far as the CCP goes? Basically. And what was it like talking to this princeling? Oh, he was very uh, down to earth. I never really quite understood why he had that first lunch that we had. I think maybe he was looking for business interest. I don't quite know. Um, but we, when I went back to China many years later as a correspondent, we still talked to each other. We would go and have lunch at his favourite Italian restaurant in the Hyatt Hotel. John Howard became Prime Minister in the late 90s and there's a story that on his first foreign visit to China, as, to Beijing as Prime Minister, he looked out at the hotel window and saw a forest of cranes, saw with his own eyes China's economic explosion and he said, how long has this been going on? I had a similar occasion actually. It's interesting you say that. Um, you know, after being a abroad in the 90s, the Times dragged me back to Washington to cover the State Department, it had this fancy title, Chief Diplomatic Correspondent. Well, what it really meant was that you you went around the world with the Secretary of State right. on fairly arduous and not always very interesting trips. Uh, so I was with Albright for two or three years. And Madeleine then, Albright, the, yes, Clinton's Secretary of State. 
And then Colin Powell, when George Bush came to power, just for nine months. And in the first nine months of his tenure as foreign secretary, he went to China and he gave a press conference in Beijing. And he said, oh, I can't get over the skyline here. It's so amazing. It looks like Alexandria, which was, you know, the outskirts of Washington, where there, at this time there were a lot of glass towers, housing, <laughs> buildings of lobbyists and various other places. And I thought to myself... What an odd thing to say. Well, I thought it was odd, but I also thought, well, where have you been? <laughs> this, this is ten times bigger and it's been going on for about a decade. Uh, I, I, you know, the sort of the insularity sometimes of American officials is really quite extraordinary. As much as I admired Colin Powell, I thought that was a fairly extraordinary statement. In 2002, you were posted to Jakarta, somewhat closer to home. You know, Indonesia, it's often said, is one of the great underreported nations in the world. It's an enormously important place. It's the biggest by population Muslim country in the world. It's in one of the fastest growing parts of the world. It's right on our doorstep. I think we're a little bit better, but not much better than the United States. Did you have a sense of that, Indonesia being a great sort of untold story when it came to the world media? Well, certainly untold, uh, but they're not very good at telling their own story, you know. But being in Indonesia was a really great place to watch the rise of China. How so? Because you could feel China's power in Southeast Asia. And while I was there, when Jabao, the prime minister of China, came down to ASEAN meeting in Bali, you could feel that, that the Chinese were coming out of their shell. They were really strutting their stuff. And no one was paying any attention because the United States was totally distracted by the aftermath of 9-11. The United States was totally distracted by Afghanistan and then Iraq. Um, and the Chinese were having a field day of it. Uh, and they've been building on that early entree into Southeast Asia ever since. Do you know, Jane, I, this is purely anecdotal, but I think Australians were by and large more aware of China's rise because we're affected so materially by it and it's closer to us. And, Absolutely. You know, all these things. But going to America in those years, it just didn't seem to be on America's radar at all. Look, Ray and I have great friends in New York. Who are they? Lawyers, authors, publishers, literary agents, filmmakers... You know, the people who know and care about the world. You talk about China to our friends, they, their eyes glaze over. They have absolutely no idea. They know it's important. They know they should know, but they haven't learned it in school. They don't take any interest in it. So China is, is still a foreign land. Yeah. So there's a kind of an insularity, which I suppose happens with every... Uh at the epicentre of any great empire, but it means you're not, you're, not, you're not ready for the next thing that comes along. That's right. I think on the West Coast, of course, it's very different, particularly mm. since uh, the, tech, the tech strength of the United States is based on the West Coast, uh, and they are really, really aware of, of China. And I, and I have to say, of course, the, the American business community is very uh, taken with China and is absorbed by it. Uh, but among what you might call the literary... Uh, journalistic set in New York. It's like a foreign land. You spent a few years posted in Pakistan and then fast forwarding, you got the call back to Beijing and that was in 2012. And this is when Xi Jinping has come to power. What story were the American, was the American leadership telling itself about Xi Jinping and the kind of leader he would be in those days? Well, I think the best thing I can tell you about that is the State Department 
had a very fancy lunch when Xi Jinping came to town in 2012. He was still vice president, but he everybody knew he was about to be elevated to be president. Mrs. Clinton was secretary of state, and she hosted this lunch for Xi Jinping. And I was about to be posted to Beijing, so the State Department said, why don't you come? So I went. And I'll always remember, it was Valentine's Day, 2012, and the grins on everybody's faces in that room, they were smiling from ear to ear. Why? Why? Because they thought Xi Jinping was going to be more of the same. He was going to be a big reformer. American business was going to flourish. The United States and China were going to be great friends and no problems at all. They got it so wrong. They got it so wrong. So they really badly misjudged him as a result. He'd only been in office for about a year when he came out with something called Document 9. Tell me about what Document 9 is and its effect. Well, this was the first concrete sign that he was not what everybody in that State Department dining room thought he was going to be. Uh, It was a broadside against all the principles of Western democracies. You know, I can't remember the exact specifics, but no free press, you know, trashed human rights, um, not a real role for the courts, and so on and so forth. All power would be drawn into the within the ranks of the of the CCP. Not only the ranks of the CCP, but the office of the presidency. The office of the presidency. He's a totalitarian leader, and for a while I've been trying to figure out if he, if you can sort of see the kind of model of totalitarian leader he is, whether he's like a Lenin or a, or a Stalin or a Mao. He seems to want to maintain the control of the CCP at all costs, even at the cost of China's economic boom. Do you think that's right, Jane? Well, I think it's always been the case that Chinese leaders believe that the existence of the Communist Party in China is the first role of the leader, that never underestimate uh, the need for the leadership in China to maintain the control total control of the Communist Party. So in that sense, he's a Leninist, I think. I think he's a Maoist in his approach, his sort of feeling of being the all-consuming leader of the, of the Chinese people. Um, so I th- intellectually, he's a Leninist, but emotionally, he's Maoist. Yeah, there, a little mm. bit of a Maoist, but intellectually, he's a Leninist for total control of all organs of the state, all of them. You mentioned he was a princeling. The, the son of a senior Communist Party official in Mao, from the Mao era. When you were there as a teenager in 1967, what was going on for Xi Jinping? Well, he was one of the Red Guards, you know. He was uh, sent out uh, from his... He had had a very princeling upbringing, if you like, um, living in Zhongnanhai, which is the big command centre where leaders of the Communist Party live and the government, the height of the government functionaries, and he had been there as a child. Um, And then the Cultural Revolution came along. His father had been disgraced. So I think they were kicked out of Zhongnanhai at one point. Uh, His father was sent to a faraway province for a nothing nothing burger job. And the son was, was sent out to a faraway province during the Cultural Revolution. Um, Many Red Guards ran home for sustenance. Well, he ran home for sustenance and his mother refused to take him in. 
His father wasn't home. His father was was away, you know, in purgatory. Mother refused to take him in because, it's explained later, it would have hurt her if she had. And he dutifully went back to the countryside and stayed for many years. This is pure speculation. We can't really know what goes on the mind of Xi Jinping. But what lesson do you think he drew from having been a privileged insider to be kicked out and disgraced and then sort of finding his way back in? Do you think... Uh, you, have to be, you have to be secure and make security for yourself at all costs. Right. It's better to be an insider than an outsider. That's the lesson, Def- is it? Definitely. And, you know, I think one of the interesting things about him is he's, his education is quite meagre. Um, high school, maybe one year, not even. So the Cultural Revolution disrupted his formal education? Definitely. And then when he came back from the Cultural Revolution... Uh, he got into uh, Tsinghua University, which is one of the most prestigious universities, on the back of his father, who by that time had been reinstated and was in favor. So he didn't have to pass any exams. He just got into Tsinghua University. And he wrote a, a thesis, which is widely considered to have been ghostwritten by others. Uh, so a very meager education. Not like some of the early leaders who at least went to... Paris and experienced other other countries at a very early age. So he's not worldly at all? Never struck me as being worldly. He has been to Australia many times. He used his vice presidency. He was vice president uh, uh, for a number of years, and he used that time to travel the world. But I've often wondered how much he really learned because he traveled with an entourage of people who I think just protected him from, from all, and he didn't show any curiosity. But by the time he became president, I think he'd been to almost every Australian state. And then when he became president, he topped it off by going down to Tasmania. I went at the same time because I was very curious, you know, why the hell is he going to Tasmania? And I always thought that the Australian press missed the point. They, you know, they wrote fluffy stories about this guy coming to Tasmania. Well, in fact, he went for a strategic reason. He wanted Hobart as a starting off point for the Chinese military to go down to the Antarctica, and he got it. There's a way you can look at China. You can look at Xi Jinping's regime, which is to say he's a ruler of enormous strength. He's subordinated the business class to the Communist Party, senior leaders like Jack Ma. Ministers appear and then they disappear. The foreign minister's gone. The defence minister is gone. The, so, much, so much of what was the, the open and cultural life of a city like Beijing has been shut down under Xi Jinping. And this, is, this can be seen as great strength, but really isn't the real story here of weakness? Like a, a country, a leadership that's strong doesn't need to indulge in these petty acts of total control. What, what do you think, Jane? Well, I think it's very hard. I, I would be very uh, restrained about saying it's, it's a sign of weakness. Um, I Fragility, if you like, then, because there's no popular mandate for the CCP. Well, we don't know. We don't know. I think, it's, I think it's very dangerous to say there's no popular mandate for the CCP. We, we really don't know. You have to remember that there are still 600 million people in China who earn, I don't know what the figure is now, whether it's still less than a dollar a day, but there are 600 million people who don't earn very much, are still very poor. 
I think the support among the educated class and the business class seems to be eroding. I saw a very interesting scrap of a video the other day of a businessman who's just furious at at what's going on in terms of clamping down on uh, private enterprise. And he said, you know, the more people like me leave, it leaves the peasants behind in China. And that makes it easier for a totalitarian regime. I thought there was some, it was a very interesting comment for someone to make, especially by a Chinese. In a great many ways, it would be kind of insane for the regime to invade Taiwan. Might they do it anyway, Jane? I have no idea, and I think anybody who says they know is crazy. Is this the problem with reporting on China? What goes on in the Politburo is a black box? Well, that's what's commonly said. That's a problem, obviously. But the bigger problem is that Western journalists are not there. The New York Times, when I left as bureau chief in the fall of 2019, we had eight reporters in China. We now have two, and they cannot leave because if they leave, there'll be no visas for new ones. And the life of journalists in in China is becoming more and more precarious. For everybody, I think reporting in China is a very dangerous task. And I have to say, it's the number of visas are down in part because the Trump administration decided in its wisdom to expel 60 Chinese journalists from the United States in the early part of uh, Trump's uh, reign. And, you know, I can understand that they were upset and furious at the Chinese and they accused some of these journalists of being acolytes or doing intelligence work for the Chinese intelligence services. Well, maybe some of them were writing notes back to Beijing and writing to the MSS, and maybe some of them were active intelligence agencies. But sometimes you think, maybe it's better to see what they're doing in front of your nose (laughs) rather than sending them away. (laughs) And they knew, the Trump people knew that there was going to be repercussions against uh, American journalists and Western journalists. You're making a podcast series called Face Off, China versus the United States. Is the US up for this contest? I mean, there's a lot of talk about it, but the US is about to become embroiled in another presidential election. We'll become very self-obsessed. Is the United States really going to meet them in that contest, Jane? Well, it depends who's going to be president (laughs) by the next election. I think it has changed a lot in, in... Washington. In fact, in some ways, there's too much focus on 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 China now. Um, putting aside Gaza and putting aside Ukraine, which have which is now daily breaking news, there is a lot of attention on China. But whether it's the right kind of attention, I sometimes wonder. I mean, Gallagher, who's head of the new China Committee in the House in the House of Representatives, he's a very bright guy, uh, scholar, soldier kind of guy. Um, he's never been to China. I mean, I find this just astounding. And everything is anti, anti, anti China. I, I, I agree with some of the moves that have been taken. I think it's right that the United States tries to limit the amount of uh, tech knowledge and tech gains that the United States has made. I said, why give it away to China? And China runs a very aggressive. Uh, all-of-state espionage uh, campaign in the United States to get what they can. Uh, So I think it's right to be very firm on tech and military matters. But whether there's a stomach for 
really concentrating on what the relation should be, I'm not so sure. I think we're all well advised to be very sort of extremely watchful of the Chinese Communist Party Definitely. and its intentions. But Definitely. then it's also really easy, I've found it, I've been there many times, to love China. China's an amazing place. It's like a whole universe. And maybe those experts won't understand China unless they actually live there and spend time there and actually be amongst the Chinese people and understand what an astounding place it is for all their very, very real concerns about the Chinese Communist Party. Right. I think the time of the kind of China that you're talking about, I think it must be under a certain amount of stress. It's very because of the uh, the moves that Xi Jinping is making uh, in strengthening the state economy, bending down on, on private enterprise, uh, filling the school cur- curriculum with propaganda, demanding uh, certain things of, you know, allegiance to the Communist Party from all kinds of people, you know, in the universities, in academic situations, and the stress on the military. I think it's a very different place now than than even in 2019 when I went. And, and I could see the writing on the wall when I was there in 2019. I was there last in 2019. And I went into a bar one night in Beijing with my wife, Kim, and the woman behind the bar, who ran the bar, spoke English. And she said, oh, where are you from? You're from America. She said, oh, no, we're from Australia. And she, we got chatting and she said... Tell me, why is it that our president, Xi Jinping, has been banned from your country? And I said to her, that's not the case. In fact, President Xi Jinping has been invited twice to address the Australian Parliament, which is the highest honour we can give a a, a foreign visitor. The conversation then completely shut down and she just went to talk to some some other people after that. And forever after, I've been wondering what she's been told and what she believes, whether she had any scepticism towards what the party might tell her, she certainly knew well enough not to go any further once she'd heard something that contradicted what she might have had from the the official line about these matters. I don't know. What does that make you think of, Jane, when I tell you a story like that? Well, I think that uh, propaganda is extremely powerful. Persuasive? Uh, well, it's it's persuasive because there's no, no other information. And people want to believe, and it's understandable, that China is is finally emerging as the most powerful country in the world and the propaganda machine feeds into that. So I think the conversation that you had from someone who's probably not widely travelled or widely educated uh, is quite understandable. And just in the next few years, what are you looking at? The South China Sea, which is this large swathe of the western flank of the Pacific Ocean, which China, by the way, has always claimed as its own for centuries, um, and is acting in that way as though it's its own. I think that is the place that is the highest danger point, uh, really, really dangerous. And it, there could be a repeat of what happened in 2001, which is when uh, a Chinese fighter jet slammed into a U.S. spy plane. And the U.S. have always and still do run spy planes outside the 12-mile perimeter of, the, of China on the, on the coast, but they, they run spy planes that can look into China uh, to see what they're doing militarily. And if there's another uh, collision like that, it could, could well be close to war. It'll take a lot of calming down very quickly to make sure that there's no war. And I know that there are war games going on at the Pentagon as we speak, 
gaming out what might happen if there is another collision. Highly dangerous. Fascinating speaking with you, Jane, and thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. 